If you have a Bible, 2 Samuel chapter 14, uh, we are working our way through this amazing book. As we saw after we got through chapter 12, it's going to be a bumpy ride from here on out. We're going to see the prophecy that Nathan made to to, uh, um, David in 2 Samuel 11. That prophecy is going to make its way through the duration of his life. And obviously we know that for the remainder of the history of Israel as well. Um, But I want us to focus this morning on one chapter, chapter 14, and deal with unresolved sin. And that's what we see here taking place. The consequences of, of the prophet Prophet Nathan said to David, this is what's going to happen. But David is fully participating in exacerbating these sins himself. We saw that last week in chapter 13 with the, the rape of Tamar and the killing of Amnon and his doing nothing about it. Um, whenever we willfully and knowingly go against the word of God, not doing what we ought to do and knowing we ought to do it, whenever we do that, trouble will follow. David knew that he should exercise justice against his his son Absalom for the murder of Abnon. He knew that. But he could not bring himself to it. We talked about the inordinate love he had for his children last week. And so this, this is a man who is saved. He was a man after God's own heart. But his conscience is not clear. And because his conscience is not clear, he allows injustice and he allows sin to continue, not only in the nation, but in his own family. And so he's caught between knowing what he ought to do and not doing it. Knowing what the word of God calls him to do and not doing what God has called him to do. I I believe every one of us can relate to that dilemma. Knowing what God says and not doing what God says. So we're not going to elevate ourselves above David. We're going to see ourselves as David. And by God's grace, not become as susceptible to the deception that he experienced by these false counselors, these false teachers that came in. Absalom's sin of murder is left unresolved. The relationship between David the king and the heir apparent is left unresolved. And this is how our chapter plays out today. And we'll see here this foundation that's laid in this unresolved sin resulted in David almost losing his throne. We'll see that in the next couple of weeks. It did lead to the death of Absalom and it led to the death of many Israelites as well. So I pray that we can look this morning and by God's grace see how we will not be vulnerable to this by bringing our sins before God, by confessing them, by not leaving them unresolved for months or in this particular case, years. And then I'd like to, by God's grace, see how we can guard ourselves against this same dilemma, the same problem. So is it your desire to hear this, this teaching from 14? Because I, I want you awake, I want you cognizant, I want you thinking, all right? All right, give me an amen if you're all going to do that for me this morning. All right, good. The babies cry, so they're awake, I know that. All right. I want to look at three things. One, being susceptible to deception, how we are as well. Number two, how evil plans advance. And number three, a meaningless kiss. A meaningless kiss. You'll see what that means in a bit. So being susceptible to deception. Years had passed since Bathsheba and Uriah. Five years have now passed since the rape of Tamar. And yet the ongoing effects of the sin that came into David's family continue to make their way out in his life with a significant passage of time. 
Joab, we all remember Joab. This is David's general to a fault. And he goes out and he, he realizes that this, this stalemate between Absalom and, and King David cannot continue for a period of time. He doesn't want to continue. So he goes, David's got, Joab's going to do some scheming of his own, right? We, we saw Abnon was scheming, Absalom was scheming, David did some scheming, so why not Joab? He can get in the mix as well. And so he does that. And he, he goes and he gets a wise woman from Tekoa. And he brings her to himself and he, and he gives her this story that he wants to take to the king and he wants to get the king to think a particular way. And what he wants the king to think is, I should bring Absalom back. And so he sends this woman off to David. Look at verse, uh, look at verse 4. The woman of Tekoa came to the king. She fell on her face to the ground and paid homage and said, Save me, O king. Verse 5. The king said to her, What is your trouble? She answered, Alas, I am a widow. My husband is dead. And your servant had two sons, and they quarreled with one another in the field. There was no one to separate them, and one struck the other and killed him. And now the whole clan has risen against your servant, and they say, Give up the man who struck his brother, that we may put him to death for the life of his brother whom he killed. And so they would destroy the heir also. Thus they would quench my coal that is left and leave to my husband neither name nor remnant on the face of the earth. Now, this is a fictitious story, okay? So as we're, as we're working through this, it's hard because she actually comes back to it and addresses it in a manner that, that you would believe her to be testifying to her own life and her own situation. But this is, these are the words of Joab. She's speaking on his behalf. And she comes to David and she says, Listen, I had two sons. They fought also. And one of my sons killed the other. And the son who is surviving is now fled into exile. And all the people from my clan want to put him to death. And he's my only son. And if he dies, my, my husband will have no name. And so she's trying to get David to sympathize with her current situation. And she comes to him as a king and as a judge. Why? So that he would grant relief. So that he would provide protection for this son who is now supposedly in exile. And so David grants protection. Look at verse 11. She said, Please let the king invoke the Lord your God and the avenger of blood kill to, to kill no more. And my son... Be not destroyed. And then he said, As the Lord lives, this is an oath now that David is making, As the Lord lives, not one hair of your son shall fall to the ground. And so now David has said exactly what she wanted him to say. He actually made an oath that this man, her son, could, would not only be protected, but he could come back without being killed by the clan. Having said this, in similar fashion, to the prophet Nathan, but nowhere near as particular. We'll see that in a minute. In verse 12, she says, Why then, this is, the, this is the wise woman now talking to King David, Why then have you planned such a thing against the people of God? For in giving this decision, the king convicts himself, inasmuch as the king does not bring his banished one home again. And she's speaking, of course, of Absalom. She's saying, if you're going to grant this this oath before God to save my son and bring him home, then why would you not do the same for your son, O king? David again finds himself in the hot seat, but he ought not. If you have a discerning ear and you were listening closely, this story does not resemble David's story well. And it's not as though this woman is coming to him with a word from God as Nathan came to him after the, the taking of Bathsheba. In fact, A.W. Pink said this. He said, whereas Nathan spoke on behalf of God, this woman was working for the devil. 
When you read through that, did you sense that? That there's emotional manipulation and there's, there's a, a desire to get David to rely upon sentiment for his son rather than the word of God and the law of God, exercising justice as a, as a godly king. We examine her story just a bit. The parallel is not terribly close. In fact, just look at this. First, her two sons were fighting and one killed the other. That's manslaughter. That's not cold-blooded murder. Absalom calculated the murder for two years and then exercised it against his brother. The, the law of God is very clear. The punishment, the crime of manslaughter is different than the crime of murder, and the punishment for manslaughter is different than the punishment for murder. So she puts that twist in there, and she gets David on that. Not only that, she says that, that this family will persecute her son if he comes home. Absalom is in self-induced exile. He's the one that fled to Geshur. David didn't tell him to leave, and David didn't tell him not to come back. David said nothing. She also said that this is my only son, and if he dies, my husband will have no name. Now, I'm sure that pulled at David's heartstrings, but that was also not true of David, right? David had other children. And so it parallels, but it's it's not quite right, and that was the intention. She was not appealing to the law of God or the justice of God. She was appealing to emotions and sentimentality. She wanted David to be drawn in. And then look at verse 14. This, I think, is the most deceptive part of the story. Verse 14, she appeals to God's mercy. We must all die, she says. We are like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. But God will not take away life, and he devises means so that the banished one will not remain an outcast. Do you hear do you hear the satanic undertones of that? You say, that's right, but it's just partly right. right. She brings in this one-sided appeal to God's mercy without repentance, without sacrifice, without faith. She does so by, by calling David to bring in this outcast, his son, without justice. Does God do this? Does he bring in the outcast sinner? Of course he does. But it requires repentance and it requires sacrifice through the the sinner confessing their sins before a holy God and those sins being imputed upon the sacrificial lamb, Jesus Christ. Then we can be brought in. But it can't be cheap mercy and it can't be cheap grace. Absalom, at this point in time, had done neither. He hadn't confessed of his sin of committing murder. He hadn't repented before God or David. There was no sense of, of brokenness over this. In fact, three years had passed for him to contemplate this matter. And there's no indication from the word of God that he had repented or intended to repent. Now, that wasn't enough. She makes one last push. I mean, she, she's selling the story. And she goes after David's ego. Look at verse 20. David figures out that Joab's behind it all, she says in verse 20, in order to change the course of things, that be the stalemate between you and your son, your servant Joab did all this. He sent me here. He gave me this story. And then listen to what she says. But my Lord has wisdom, like the wisdom of the angel of God, to know all things that are on the earth. Really? I mean, come on. She, she goes to that last place She's going to appeal on a false story, manslaughter instead of murder. She's going to appeal upon being banished, self-banishment versus 
actually being cast out. She's going to appeal to the mercy of God. And then she appeals. She goes right to, I'll, just, I'll go for your ego. I'll give you a few strokes here. Proverbs 29.5. A man who flatters his neighbor spreads a net for his feet. And that's exactly what she did. She placed the net. David stepped in the net and she had him. Closed the deal. W.G. Blackie said, Nathan's parable was designed, listen, saints, this is such a great quote. He said, Nathan's parable was designed to rouse the king's conscience against his feelings. This woman's story was intended to rouse his feelings against his conscience. She was trying to get him emotionally manipulated to go against what he knew to be right and true. He knew what he should, should do. He knew it was wrong for, for Absalom to remain in exile and not be held accountable for the murder of Abnon. David knew this. Instead, he responded to the story. He responded to the, to the false mercy. He responded to the flattery. He wanted to be convinced. I mean, he really did. Joab wanted them back together. David wanted to be convinced. This woman comes in. She persuades him. And Absalom comes home. Look at verse 21. When the king said to Joab, Behold, I grant this. Go bring back the young man Absalom. Done deal. Mission accomplished. David wanted to be persuaded. Joab wanted to be persuaded. The woman persuaded him. And Joab comes home. Joab comes home. Because David knew the right thing to do, and because he loved his sons with an inordinate, perverted love, he was willing to sacrifice the law and the justice of God. And in so doing, continues to live and must live with a guilty conscience. He put himself in a position, saints, to be easily deceived. And he was deceived and manipulated by this wise woman. Now, this is not uncommon for so many believers today. Many of our brothers and sisters, they've made themselves susceptible to poor teaching and false teaching because of unresolved sin left in our lives. Instead of coming before God and dealing with it rightly and submitting our sins to God and following Christ daily, we have all this baggage that convolutes our conscience. And as our conscience is convoluted, we don't think clearly. We don't make right decisions as a result of it. And so too, we see that here in David's life as a king and as a father in his own family. You know, some time ago, some of you know this well, we had a member in Christ here at our church who found herself in a very similar situation. She had a younger sister that wanted to divorce her husband. The older sister knew it was wrong according to Scripture. She knew that, but she could not fathom the thought of her sister remaining married to this man. So here she was with a crisis of faith as well. She knew the right thing to do in counseling her younger sister, and she chose not to do it. And what happened during that time? About a year and a half, people came in. People came into her life with teaching and counsel and literature. And she was vulnerable and she gobbled it up because it told her, essentially, that her younger sister could divorce this man and it would be okay, that it was okay with God. She was set up for that. And what was the end result? What was the end result of that? The divorce went through. The older sister supported it. And it breaks my heart to tell you that neither of those two young ladies are walking with the Lord today. You say, well, how does that happen? 
the sin that was unresolved. In this particular case, the sister saying, I'm not going to submit to my sister. I'm going to submit to God, and I'm going to stand on what's right. Her refusal simply to submit to God on a black and white issue left her exposed, and it caused her to fall. My beloved, you are not stronger than David. And this woman was not an immature Christian. Any of us who think, well, you know what? I have lingering sin in my life. There's some unresolved issues there I know about. I haven't confessed them yet. I'll deal with them later. Deal with them today. Lest you find yourself susceptible to this deception as well. And if you think to yourself, I can handle it. I'm stronger than that. I'm smarter than that. I'm more mature in the faith than that. Then I'm here to tell you you're already deceived and you don't even know it. If you've drawn those wrong conclusions about how dangerous and how powerful unresolved sin is in our lives, that it continues to wreck. We're talking about five years removed here. And it continues to destroy. I pray that some sins are coming to your mind right now. You know what? I've got to deal with this today. I've got to deal with this before I go to bed tonight. I don't want this unresolved sin causing me to be susceptible, to be deceived, to hear false teachings. Maybe from you, Pastor. Possibly. How would you know? Hear the counsel of James when he said, Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. That being double-minded, loyal to God and loyal to the world, you can't do both. You can't say, I'm going to submit to the word of God, especially on these areas that I know I'm struggling with, and I'm going to submit to my flesh. You might do as David did and say, I'm just not going to deal with it all. That proved to be deadly as well. You have no idea, my beloved, if you are continuing unresolved sin, how susceptible you are to being schemed and scammed yourself. Maybe by a pastor, maybe by a teacher, maybe by a close friend like Joab who comes alongside you. I do not believe Joab's intentions were evil. I really don't. But he deceived the king. And in so doing, he brought Absalom back. And in so doing, it led to civil war. This was not an act of God. So first, I pray that we see from this text, unresolved sin leaves us, you and me, susceptible to deception. And in today's day and age, I know there are other times in the history of the church when heresy abounded, but in today's day and age, you must be wise. There's so much false teaching that permeates our land. You have to be sharp. Your conscience must be clear before God. That means we must deal with the unresolved sins today by God's grace. Next thing I want you to see, if you're still with me, is how these unresolved sins allow the plans of evil to continue. They allow evil to progress and advance. Look at verse 25. Absalom's back, he's back now in Jerusalem after being in exile for three years. But it's not as though he's all the way back in. Look at verse 25. The king said... Let him, Absalom, dwell apart in his own house. He is not to come into my presence. So Absalom lived apart in his own house and did not come into the king's presence. So David said, bring him back in, but we're not going to bring him all the way in. He's going to stay in his own house. He's not going to stay with me, and I don't want to see him. I don't want to talk to him. So really, there's been no reconciliation. There's been no resolution to this unresolved sin. 
not dealing with the murder, not dealing with the relationship between David and his son, the king and the heir apparent. And David's conscience is still in tatters here, and it must be, it must be, he refuses to deal properly with the murder of his oldest son, Amnon. And in so doing, David was not aware of this at the time, but I'm sure in retrospect he realized he made a catastrophic mistake when he brought Absalom back into the city but said, I will not talk to you. The heir apparent, not speaking to the king, it just fueled Absalom's anger toward his father. We already know that Absalom was mad at David because David did not deal with the rape of Tamar. And now Absalom's brought back in, but he's not brought back in, not talking with his father, not meeting with the king, left out of the inner circle. And by God's providence, it just so happened to coincide with Absalom's rise in popularity amongst the people. Look at verse 25. Now in all of Israel, there was no one so much to be praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. For from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. When you hear that, who comes to mind? Saul does, doesn't he? we hear almost the same undertone of the people being attracted to Absalom. There's no mention of his righteousness. There's no mention of his wisdom to lead his king. There's no mention of his love for God or love for the laws of God. That We talk about his beauty. It talks about his hair. You, you know why, because that, the, the, the author is writing it to tell us about, give us a foreshadowing of how the man dies. His hair. This man was so arrogant. His hair was supposedly so voluminous. I guess that's the measure of a man. Some of us are in big trouble. I know I am. But if, if the measure of a man is the, how, how voluminous his hair is, this, this prince evidently had his hair weighed and measured and then recorded in the books. We know exactly how much his hair weighed at his annual haircut. Pride, arrogance in all the wrong things. And the people scooped it up. They loved it. They loved it. You know, I've often thought of this remark by Mark Twain. I know apart from the gospel, it makes a great deal of sense. He said one time, times change and people don't. You know, when I look at the the church in the West today, and and I look at the degree to which churches are clamoring to fill their pulpits with people like Absalom, it absolutely breaks my heart, and I pray it does yours as well. We have the word going out today, not by men of deep conviction, not by men who have a right fear of God. I'm talking here in San Jose. I know that's the case in other places throughout the world, but I know that's true here in San Jose, where churches are fighting to find men who are attractive by the culture. Douglas Webster, he wrote a book called Selling Jesus, What's Wrong with Marketing the Church?, He's saying that tongue-in-cheek. He comes against it in his book. And he talks about this new Fortune 500 pastor. A Fortune 500 pastor that churches are hiring today. Listen to the description. They are winsome, charismatic, executive-like pastors who exude warmth and success. Known more for their humor than for their spirituality, today's market-sensitive pastors are relationally savvy. Instead of eliciting feelings of a right fear of the Lord as the old revivalists did, these pastors lift the spirit 
promote optimism and make people feel good about themselves. They're attractive. Modern day Absalons. And it is, and is it any wonder that we as a people, we as a church in the West are so anemic today when we hang our hats on hair or dress or people who promote optimism and make us feel good about ourselves. We say oftentimes, the churches, we want a spiritual awakening. We talk about how we want people to be saved and follow Christ with all their life and all their might. We talk about holiness. We talk about living lives worthy of this most high calling in Jesus Christ. We talk about this as churches. But how can the power of the gospel go out to save and sanctify if it's not moving out from the pulpits? How does that happen? If we're constantly moving to hire men who are more concerned about their hair and the number of people in their pews than they are the holiness of God and the word of God, when we talk about revival and we talk about the movement of the spirit or people being saved, then we are utter fools if the word does not go out, if it's not being faithfully preached and proclaimed, if it's not being lived out by those men who are preaching and proclaiming it. If our churches, my beloved, care more about looks than love, and more about style than substance, and more about the cosmetics of worship than the truth of worship, real worship, then we too will reap what we sow. We, my beloved, we need to pray as a church that God would raise up men here in this place. This is our mission field. San Jose is our mission field. That he would raise up men in this place quickly that would fill pulpits in real churches and declare the gospel of grace and proclaim the word of God every Sunday, Sunday after Sunday. And that we need to pray that churches would demand that and nothing else. That they'd stop being so worried about the number of ministries and the number of people in their pews and how attractive or young or hip that pastor is. Maybe they hire some old guys like me to come in and proclaim the gospel. Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. We need to pray that, though. Most of you know it's a wasteland here. It's a wasteland. It doesn't have to be like that, by God's grace. Two years pass in the stalemate between David and Absalom. He comes back, and for two years, there's no dialogue. And it was a prime opportunity for Absalom to come in and and gather those who were disgruntled with his father and give them a word of encouragement. Say, you know, you come along me, come on my side, and I'll help you out. I know my father, he's doing a disastrous job up there on the throne, but you talk to me. Stopping these kinds of movements of evil, saints, it begins by us resolving those unresolved sins in our lives. It begins by us living right in Christ. We can't point the finger at pulpits. We can't point the finger at pastors and churches if we walk in willful, noble sin ourselves. So it's got to start with us. And then by God's grace, as you pursue Christ day by day, you will speak up. You will boldly share the gospel. You will call churches to repentance. You, you will ask your friends in other churches, why is it that your pastor never preaches from the word of God? Why are they always topical sermons? Why is it that there isn't expository preaching that brings hell and sin and death and the gospel in? Why? Ask them those questions. Those are all great questions.
We need to speak up if we love Christ. We need to speak up if we desire the under-shepherds to do what the under-shepherds are called to do, especially those in the pulpit. I've shared with you enough over the years, this is a fearful thing we do here. It's a fearful thing. My beloved, the comedic, feel-good, psycho-babble preaching that fills our churches today, it's a stench to God. You say, that's hard to hear, Pastor. It's a stench to God. He hates it. And yet that's what continues to move. Anyone preaching the word of God ought to know better. And if they don't know better, they're not qualified. And if they do know better, they're a wolf in sheep's clothing. Either way, they should know. They should know. Absalons are not appropriate for being an under-shepherd of Jesus Christ. Absalons are not appropriate to care for, love, and minister to God's children. God's children deserve better than that. I fear that we have been far too patient and too tolerant for too long with the Absalons that have made their ways into the church. We have been. And I, and I, I know why, even when I gather with pastors, there's this sense of, you know, we want to keep peace. But peace, what? At the expense of righteousness? Peace at the expense of the gospel? Jeremiah said in Jeremiah 6.14, this this verse stings my ears. They have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, peace, peace, where there is no peace. We don't want light healing. We want real healing by Jesus Christ. So we need to speak boldly in love, truthfully, with great humility, but we need to speak. We need to speak. So first, I pray that we see how unresolved sin in our lives leaves us susceptible to being deceived. And I pray that that we see that unresolved sin allows the plan of evil to advance. And it has advanced in this place, in this time. You know, years ago when this church was planted, this church planted Foxworthy Baptist. This church planted, help me out, Steve, this church planted First Baptist Campbell. This church, there was another one. There was another church. Do you remember which one it was? This church at a time, this church was so full. That was the original sanctuary, the fellowship hall. They built this. This church had over 500 members as the gospel went out. So what happened? What stopped? The gospel stopped. The gospel stopped going out. If we love Christ... If we love Christ, then we want to be faithful to this true, hard message. We do. You do. Last thing I want to show you. Unresolved sin in our lives, it just leaves relationships a broken mess. It leaves relationships a mess. The last point, a meaningless kiss. Two years, two years pass. Absalom, he's returned and yet he's had no audience with the king. He hasn't seen David's face. So he grew in popularity amongst the people, and as he grew, because of his his beauty and his hair, he grew in pride. You say, well, how do you know that? Look at verse 28. It's an extraordinary few verses here. Absalom lived two full years in Jerusalem without coming into the presence of the king. Then Absalom sent for Joab to send him to the king, But Joab would not come to him, and he sent him a second time. But Joab would not come. 
Then he said to his servants, See, Joab's field is next to mine, and he has barley there. Go and set it on fire. So Absalom's servants set the field on fire. And your thought is, that this man lost his mind? Say, no, he hasn't. But he's become elevated in his own mind. Let's not forget, we're talking about Joab. This is the commander-in-chief of David's military. This is also the same man who killed Abner in cold blood. This was a man, I believe, rightly to be feared. But Absalom had no fear of him. So Absalom had gained such popularity in this two years that he, he sets, like he has a two-year-old temper tantrum and he sets Joab's field on fire. You know what? It worked. It worked. Joab goes to him. And it's, it's incredible. Look at verse 32. He, he's asked him, first of all, he says, why did you set my field on fire? Look at verse 32. Absalom answered Joab. He says, behold, I sent word to you, come here, that I may send you to the king to ask, why have I come from Geshur? It would, have been, it would be better for me to be there still. Now, therefore, let me go into the presence of the king, and if there is guilt in me, let him put me to death. So he got, he got Joab to come so he could send a message to his father. And the message he sends is, it would be better if I were not here, which, of course, was not true. He was gaining great popularity there. That's a lie. Deception. It's all deception. And then he says, if there is guilt in me, let him put me to death. The passage of time has an interesting effect on a man's conscience. Right? We're, we're talking about seven years now we're moving on. Total time. Five years from the, the exile and then back in Jerusalem. From the murder itself. For someone who's saved, the passage of time dealing with unresolved sin just goes deeper and causes nagging. So you can't sleep. It's rest. That's good. That's good. You don't want to be comfortable with sin. But for the non-believers, for the person who's not saved, for the person whose conscience, as the Bible says, has been seared, time has a tendency to soothe these things and level them out. In fact, if enough time passes, we actually find that that person can convince themselves they never did anything wrong. It's not as though Absalom was dwelling upon the word of God. He spent seven years meditating on what? How his actions were justified. How if his father had done something about the rape, if he had taken care of Abnon, that he wouldn't have had to. In fact, I imagine that Absalom got to the place where he, he believed he was actually doing his father a favor. David owes him. He appears thoroughly convinced of his own innocence. I mean, how else can a murderer say in verse 32, if there is guilt in me, let him, David, put me to death. You say, yeah, but he knew David. He knew David. He knew David wouldn't try to kill him. He knew David was one of those parents that would sacrifice God's law and justice for the sake of the son or the sake of the daughter. He knew, and that's true. But I believe seven years of meditating on rationalized, justified, sinful action that he had convinced himself that his vengeance was right. And he actually saw himself as being innocent. Look at verse 33 and we'll close on this. Joab went to the king and he told him, David summoned Absalom. So he, Absalom, came to the king and bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king. And the king, David, kissed Absalom. 
End of chapter. Strange, abrupt end. I mean, you think, well, it's good though, right? I mean, this is a good ending. Absalom comes into the presence of the king. He's called there. It's good. Absalom bows down. That's the proper response. David kisses him, symbolizing restoration, reconciliation, reinstating of Absalom back in. I imagine all the the eternal optimists in the court were just so happy that David and his son were now reunited again, and the heir apparent wasn't living off in Geshur or, or ostracized in Jerusalem, but now he's ready to take the throne when David dies. How many in the inner court were so pleased when they saw this most extraordinary event. But you read it, and you know better because you know the story. You say, this was a charade. The whole thing's a sham. You also know the heart of man. And you know that apart from true repentance and true reconciliation, there is no restitution. Greater destruction would follow. A degree to which I believe David had no idea at this point in time. So what happened in truth between this father, son, this king, and this heir apparent? What happened in truth was the exact opposite of what took place in public view. Often is the case in religion. Right? I mean, Absalom bowed down to his father, but it was with a stiff neck and a pride-filled heart. Was it not? We know that now he's in the position, supposedly reinstated, and he takes that time as we get to the next chapter, and he uses that to gain power, to strip power from his father and to gather it to himself. So this is not a a humble submission to the king. This is acting. David's no better. David grabs his son, and he kisses the son. And, And we say, well, wasn't this a form of restoration? Not even close. Because the blood of Amnon still cries out from the grave to his father. David could not rest knowing that justice for his son had been denied. A kiss was not a kiss of restoration. It was a kiss that closed the case of God's law versus Absalom. Closed it. End of story for David in his mind at this point in time. And so it continued to trouble David's already troubled conscience. And what did it do? It opened the door for full rebellion within the kingdom. Absalom's coming in and establishing power would open up the door for, as we know, civil war. There was no justice. There was no confession. There was no forgiveness sought or forgiveness given. This is what the Bible teaches. True restoration, Absalom would have to come in before the king and say, forgive me, father, for I have sinned. I killed your son. I killed my brother. And David could have granted mercy, but not without reconciliation, not without true repentance. So he kisses him, and the charade continues. This external display. It's all religion. There's no change of heart. There's no right relationship restored. He's intentionally brief. The author is. With these last few verses, I mean, you're expecting some dialogue, right? Five years have passed. They haven't spoken. You think they're going to talk about Tamar and maybe about Amnon and maybe about his time away, something, but there's no dialogue. He comes in, Absalom bows down, David kisses him, end of story. Yet it was only the beginning of the story because religion does that. Religion only continues the facade. External displays of piety only continue the lie 
No reconciliation, no restitution between man or God. Only through God, only in Christ, can this show be destroyed. And this show is happening throughout the world in many places today, and it's a show. It's good, I guess, for appeasing guilt temporarily, maybe soothing a conscience for a time, but the end result is always the same. It's always destruction. It's always death. Unless there's true repentance, true confession, true forgiveness, and true reconciliation, it always ends like this. I want to fast forward a thousand years. There was another Absalom. You say, what? There's another Absalom. And there's another king, and there was another kiss that was exchanged in extraordinary fashion, but went a little differently. This kiss that was exchanged with, uh, with, um, did between Christ and between Judas was another test of God's law. I want to show you, in Matthew, if you have your Bibles open, open to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26. A kiss was exchanged on a God-forsaken night to once again put God's law to the test. Beginning at verse 49 in Matthew chapter 26, Judas came up to Jesus there in the garden. This is after Christ already prayed and asked that God would take this cup from him and that his will would be done. Judas came up to Jesus and he said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. He kissed him. Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. And then they, these are the guards that were with him, they came up and they laid hands on Jesus and they seized him. Verse 51, And behold, one of those who were with Jesus, of course we know this is Peter, he stretched out his hand and he drew his sword and he struck the servant of the high priest, Malchus, and he cut off his ear. And then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Now listen closely. He says, Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? In the Gospel of John, John chapter 18, verse 11, we're told, Peter, uh, Jesus says, How shall I, not, shall I not drink the cup the Father has given to me? You say, well, what scriptures need to be fulfilled and what cup had to be drunk? The scriptures that said that the Messiah would have to come and live a perfect life and die a sinner's death and be buried and on the third day rise again in fulfillment of the scriptures, they had to be fulfilled. Therefore, he had to be arrested. What cup would he drink? The cup of God's wrath. You know this. The cup of God's wrath, his eternal justice to be poured out on mankind for our unresolved sins. For centuries, the king has called us into the throne room, but we refuse to go. For centuries, the king has sent out prophet after prophet after prophet, but we would not come in. We would not confess our sin of murder. We would not confess our sin of idolatry. We remained outside. We, self-inflicted outcasts in God's economy. For centuries, we refuse to listen, repent, or believe. For centuries, we have rationalized all of us, our sin away. 
Just like Absalom, we have convinced ourselves that God's not that holy and we're not that bad. And with the passage of time, the more you contemplate this, you realize not only is God not that holy and I'm not that bad, but I'm deserving of heaven. I'm not deserving of hell. I'm not deserving of of an eternal punishment. I'm deserving of heaven. And the more I think about it, I'm deserving of a throne in heaven. Flesh does this well, doesn't it, saints? This wise woman, in verse 14, as wrong as she was, she was also incredibly prophetic. Go back to verse 14 again, if you have your finger there in 2 Samuel. She said something, a teaching I don't believe we know well today. Verse 14, she said, We must all die. We are like water spilled on the ground which cannot be gathered up again. We know because of sin that we must all die. That apart from Jesus Christ, our end is not just physical death, but eternal death. We know this. But then she continues and she says, but God will not take away life and he devises means so that the banished one will not remain an outcast. Let's rephrase that. He will not take away all life. He will save some. He will save his elect through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ by fulfilling the scriptures in Christ, by Jesus, the perfect son, the lamb of God, drinking the cup of God's eternal wrath, by Christ doing that great work, taking the punishment that you deserve and that I rightly deserve, and in so doing, saving us from hell. This is the love that we talked about last week that God the Father pours out on us through Jesus Christ. And Jesus allows, in the garden, he allows the kiss of Judas. He allows the arrest. He allows being brought before Caiaphas and Herod and Pilate and being falsely accused. He allows the sentencing to death. He allows the beatings and the persecution and being spat upon and being beaten. He allows them to take him out to the cross. He allows the crucifixion. You say, why would he allow all of this? Why? When he can call down legions of angels, why would he do this? So the scriptures would be fulfilled. So he could drink the cup instead of you or me and anyone who repents and believes. That's why. Christ knew The Father knew that we would not come to him. After centuries and centuries of him calling us in, we will not come unless Christ comes to us first. The Father knew that, Christ knew that, so Christ had to go to the cross in order for anyone, for one person to be redeemed. And at the cross, everything stops. All the charades stop. All the religion, all the showmanship, all the coming before the king and bowing down with a stiff neck and all that perception of the king receiving us with a kiss, it all ends there. Because at the cross, the holiness of God is magnified, the depth of man's sin is magnified, and the incredible blessings of mercy and grace are revealed in the blood of Jesus Christ. The cross lays everything bare, No more lies, no more charades, no more deception, no more twisting in truth. It wasn't murder, it was manslaughter. It wasn't self-exile, you exiled me. 
all that goes away. And we, we come before Christ and we see that our just desert is what Christ received was being forsaken by God. He receives that in his body on the cross. Why? So that Absalom's like you and Judas's like me don't have to end up in an eternal hell. That's why. I know my heart, and I know most of you well enough to know your heart. Our hearts are deceitfully wicked above all else. Who can understand it? No one can understand it before God. But he knew that apart from Christ coming and Christ doing the work and saving us, no one would be saved. And if you know Christ, you know you never would have repented. You never would have gone before God. You never would have bowed that knee. Not one time, 90 years, 100 years, you'd have gone right to your grave saying, not you, Lord, I'm Lord. But by God's grace, if you know Christ, he sent Christ to you. He did. He brought the Holy Spirit to bear on you. And at some point in time in your life, you understood that this God is real and this God is holy and he will not tolerate sin. And then you realized, I am a sinner. I am a chief of sinners and I need someone to save me. And then God, by his grace, said, here's my son. He died for you. Repent and believe. And you said, I will. And you did. It's a most glorious thing that we don't have to be like Absalom and we don't have to end in this relationship between David and Absalom, that we can actually be brought in and we can actually be restored. We don't have to remain outcasts. And if you're in Christ, you're not an outcast, you're in. Through the cross, you can bring all that unresolved sin, all the mess that you're still hiding that's really not hidden at all because Christ and God, they see everything. You can actually bring the unresolved sin into the throne room and place it before the king and confess it and turn from it. And what will the king do? Smite you? Will he cast you out? He will pick you up and he will kiss you. But it will be a real kiss. It won't be a fake David kiss to Absalom. It will be the kiss of the king who says, I love you. That's why I called you. That's why I saved you. That's why it's good for you to repent the unresolved sins to me. That I might heal you and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. Foolish child, confess your sins to God today that he might kiss you. Not a fake kiss, but a loving kiss. He brings you into the court. He brings you all the way in. And he says, you are a son and you are a daughter and you belong to me. And in that, in that great work of Christ, there's complete restoration. We saw this a couple weeks back. The relationship between you and God the Father is restored in Christ. I mean, that's glorious for all eternity. That means that you will be in the presence of God the Father, in the presence of Christ for all eternity, worshiping and adoring Him forever. But it also means right now there's real power, real power in the Holy Spirit to live as a godly people. Not to continue in sin, not continue to hide sin, not to, live un, not to leave unresolved sin unresolved, but to deal with it. The breach between David and Absalom, it ended in the death of Absalom. There's no indication from the text that he ever repented, that he ever believed, that he ever put his faith in God. And so that fruit 
was born out and is being born out for eternity in hell, for Absalom. But that does not have to be the case for you. The breach between you and God as a result of sin does not have to end in death if you have Christ. But it's only Christ that can resolve that dilemma for you. It's only Christ that can call you in and say, confess and believe and follow me. Only Christ can say to you, I am the king and I will kiss you and I will call you to follow me. And if you do, it will be hard. There will be much sacrifice. But if you do, it'll be well worth the journey to pick up your cross and follow Christ. If you say to yourself, I don't want to be susceptible to deception like David, I praise God for that, nor do I. If you say that you don't want to allow evil to progress in your life or the life of this church or the life of San Jose because of unresolved sin and that compels you to confess your sin to God, I say, praise God, confess today. If you say, in my heart of hearts, Pastor, I would love to be kissed by the king. I would love to be brought in and adored by Christ. This is what I want. Then I say, praise God, because God wants that too. He doesn't want you on the outside. He wants you on the inside, all the way in. If you desire these things, then I will say to you, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Fix your hope on Christ. Fix your whole life on Christ. Your gaze, your thoughts, your words, your work, your hobbies, every moment of every day when you're awake, when you're asleep, fix it on Christ. Make him your life. Hunger and thirst for his righteousness. Pursue holiness every day. Through prayer, through scripture, through community, pursue holiness Come into the throne room today and every day, not with a stiff neck, not with a prideful heart, but come in broken and contrite. The Bible says God loves those with a broken and contrite heart. So break your heart. Daily confess. Leave nothing unconfessed before God. Nothing. Saints, that that means we got some work to do. That means those sins that you don't want to tell anybody you might want to confess to a brother or sister in Christ. You must confess them to God. And that has to be done daily. Confess them daily. Daily desire God and His holiness. Daily want His will to be done. Say, Lord, Thy will be done. My flesh wants this. I want Your will. And submit to it in Christ. 1 Peter 5, 6 is, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. That is the end for you, saint. It is being exalted in the presence of Christ, with Christ, reigning with Christ forever. God pours out his glory on you, and you pour that glory right back. How many of you are still outcasts? How many of you are still hanging outside the throne room? Stop. Come in. Bow down with a broken and contrite heart. Confess your sins to God. 
receive the forgiveness that comes from Christ, be healed today, and then pick up your cross with whatever time he gives you on earth and follow him with all your life. Amen?